Thank you, Ethan, and the rest of the music team. At this time, we'll dismiss the littlest ones for Children's Church. And you can take your Bibles and open up to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. After finishing Matthew, uh, you could say, and I, I mean, as I kind of look at Matthew, and the, the story ends so abruptly, but that's because it continues in the church that there's a natural flow here over, I think, this Sunday and the next coming Sundays, although it's not quite as, sequ- as a sequential exposition. That is, we're not going through Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 this morning. But it is going to flow with, okay, if the next part of the story is the church, and you just grant with me that the church is born in Acts chapter 2, and the Spirit it comes and indwells believers and the gospel goes forth, then at some point in church history— There is a question of what does the church look like? And so uh, I think it's natural that we go, okay, that's pretty important for us that we have an understanding of what we, what providence should be. And I think one of the clearest places to look and see that is in Ephesians. And in part, it's not just because of chapter four, it's the whole book which continues to highlight the church, the church, the church. And when we get to some of the the natural outworkings, I'd say the high level of philosophy of why we do what we do, especially here at Providence, you go, um, why? You know, you're a young person. And I can remember being at at that stage and thinking, when is the sermon going to end? Right? Why isn't the sermon 15 minutes or 25 minutes? You know, why isn't it 45 or 50? You know, maybe it could be an hour. Is anyone voting for an hour? No. Uh, I might need more material. No, but uh, all those questions start to come to the surface of what's the priority? Why is it teaching? Why is it this? And I think Ephesians is going to give us insight and that this isn't just my idea uh, that we prioritize certain things. It is that we are being submissive to Scripture in the way that we do things to the best that uh, our, our abilities well, let me pray and then let's we'll jump in together. Father, thank you for your word and that it does give us instruction, not only for the way that we can live our lives, the way that we can parent our children, but even and importantly, the way that the church should look and the way that we should um, serve one another and the things that we should give priority to and the goal that we should be focused on as we look towards being conformed into the image of Christ. Help us see those truths clearly this morning. Let it deepen our conviction and clarity of why we do the things that we do. We just ask this in your son's name. Amen. Well, what is growth? What is the nature of things that Grow. We could look at the natural world and we understand that they grow and usually um, in the natural world things start not always but often as a seed that is planted that grows roots deep first and then starts to come up. And for some things they're kind of annual and they keep coming up and there are some things that just keep growing that live for long periods of time and you have trees that for me I planted some at a foot tall and now they're three foot tall. It's the nature of things that if they're healthy, they would grow. That's nature. If you look at our economy, if you look at, for us in America, within our structures of business, and you just see a natural thing that if a business is doing well, you see it grow. And there's these external factors. And for those of you who are in business or those of you who own businesses, you understand there's a certain way in which you can look at these tangible things, tangible numbers, tangible data points, and go, hmm, let me use, which in this case is a good God-given ability to be creative. Come up with solutions because you're presented with problems. How do I go after a greater piece of the market share? But when it comes to the church, there, there is a danger upon which we overlay, whether it be nature Because again, if we take care of things we control, and that you took a good job of planting that tree into good soil, and you were faithful to go water it every day, 
then naturally it's going to do what it's supposed to do and it's going to grow. And there's going to be visible signs, right? And if in, we take the, the business world and we overlay that in a simplistic way, it's not to say there's no relation here, and we look and we say these same practices, this same path of a successful organization or business, it should look that exact way in the church. And that is we start to look and have kind of, understandably, materialistic eyes that see the physical. And I'm not saying that's not at all. Uh, there's no value in it. Just like Paul says of the body, that some physical uh, benefit, right, to be physically fit. There's, there's some benefit, but there's something going on for the church that is different than both those things. And it is that the growth of the church is largely unseen. And because it's unseen, it really messes with us humans because we love metrics. We love to see the outward and we love to measure and to say this can be something that is measurable and attainable. And then we can measure it against another person in that space, in our case, other churches, and go, oh, we're a healthy church. God is working here. Why? And almost always because someone is talking about numbers. Or, you know, it's been said, uh, it becomes all about nickels and noses. That's what we're counting. Well, the church, I think biblically speaking, if you look at the New Testament, you're going to find that very absent, they're not, it's not that they don't give in the New Testament. There's lots about giving. It's not that the pastors aren't re to receive double honor and that you don't have those who are hired in the church. But it is to say, there's never a focus on that as to say that is the goal. We don't look at a metric as elders and go, uh, the only measurement here or the primary measurement is, man, we gave more money than last year. That's not the primary measurement. And the primary measurement is not even how many baptisms, although pretty good, right? Praise the Lord for baptisms. And for more people that want to learn and to grow and that have walked through the doors or even personal for you guys where you invite a neighbor and they come. Those are all good things, but they're not primary. And sometimes when you start to take what is supposed to be primary and you put it downstream, what happens is it gets lost. And there is something primary in the New Testament, I think, of what the church is to be about. And if you get that right, you're at the top of the stream and everything else is downstream from there. And if you put something else at the top of that stream, at the, the, the head of that river, everything else is going to get messed up depending on what your goal is and how you define the nature of church growth. Because I don't mind the term, but typically if I'm talking, someone asks me, how's your church doing? They, you know, even within the pastor's world, they're kind of asking, well, how many people, right? Well, I don't like to think of it that way. And I think of, and I think the scriptures think of growth as people. You can call it gospel growth, you can call it, but it really what we're talking about is, is individuals are the people in your congregation growing spiritually. Is there growth happening in their lives. And if you get that right, which there's some things that cause growth, there's some things that bring maturity. We understand that things will flow naturally. And in our culture, there's some truth, right? There's a lot of freedom in America. And so you can see certain things, like churches taking on a larger kind of um, organizational footprint than in many places in the world. In other words, it looks a lot different here than it does in places where it is illegal to be a Christian. But in both cases, we should have the same goal. And it's difficult for us at times because we get into this comparison game, but the, the goal really is going to be that of maturity. And there's no better place than Ephesians chapter 4 that it looks at this topic because the church is something, I'm going to argue, hopefully you agree as we've gone through the Gospel of Matthew, that it is unique. It's not to say there's no relationship, right? There, there's some carryover in which you can manage people where you're speaking publicly. Like they, they understand that, but there's still uniqueness with it. And one of those things, you think about um, the gospel of Matthew and what is and is the only called an organization gathering to which Jesus said, I will 
build. Right? He says, I will build my church and the gates of Haiti will not prevail against it. That's unique. That's different. And it's also different because we are dependent in a different way. If God is not moving and the Spirit is not working in people's hearts and people's lives, then you will not see growth, right? And yes, he works through means, which we're going to see some of those means this morning. I think that's where part of that is. You want to see God work, you got to work through his divine ordained means. And too many churches, I think, avoid that and go back to, but there's other metrics upon which we can obtain. And that goes back to this idea of the goal. But the goal matters. If your goal is numerical growth, some of you might be familiar with this term, the, the seeker-sensitive model, that is, it, it is going to impact what you do Sunday morning, and it is going to impact what you do Monday through Saturday. You're going to go out, as is famous in those um, kind of philosophies, that you're going to figure out what does this neighborhood, what is West Omaha, what is Gretna, what do they want in a church? Take a survey, and they're going to say, want this, 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 and this. And then you're going to go, perfect. Then we'll provide that. And then you go tell them, well, you said you wanted that, and why don't you come, and why don't you enjoy it? But that's not God's design, and it does not lead to maturity. And so our goal is not primarily that. Again, it's not to say growth is bad. It is just to say it is not an attractional model that the New Testament brings. It's not this model that says the more attractive you are to the world, the more faithful you are. In fact, we often find the very opposite, right? The world is at odds with the church. And the goal is not as well as its primary function, this idea, which you'll see often, of cultural transformation. And that you want to have a church that goes out and kind of changes the city. And there's this big cultural transformation. That's somewhat popular. And it's not to say that as individuals, you don't go out and you should be different. You should be a different kind of boss if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. You should be a a different kind of artist if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. But it's to say it's not the goal. That's not what we have been called to as the church. If your goal is, of course, to be accepted, or to use that term, liked, you think that's going to have an impact on what you do week in and week out? Especially if you're not preaching through, say, books of the Bible, and you're not kind of working through verse by verse, there's a tendency, there are some passages, and I've felt it. You're going to go, well, this isn't going to be that popular. Or honestly, you just find moments where you go, that doesn't preach as well as other things. And that temptation of being liked is going to change what you teach to the point where some are not going to teach the scriptures at all. Why? Because their goal is wrong. If your goal is to make people happy or fulfilled, it's going to change what we do Sunday morning. In fact, what you hear may make you feel guilty, may make you feel ashamed. And I don't think the gospel wants you to stay there, but the reality of facing those things and taking the scripture as a mirror and looking at it and changing things becomes this idea of maturing that is different a different way that you look about what is the goal of the church. I have a lot in my notes and I'm just gonna skip on. Thought a lot about this. The goal though, thinking about it positively, as a church is that we believe that God has a clear design for the church. And that blueprint is... Maturity, that blueprint here in Ephesians 4, starting in verse 11, we're going to focus on, is this idea that we, that is, that there is meant to be leaders who are training and equipping the church to do the work of the ministry. And that measurement of how well you are doing is, are people growing and maturing? And if you see maturing, you are going to see them reaching out. And you're going to see, I think, again, you want to be careful with the idea that you might, because the Lord's sovereign, you, you might not see the multiplication you want to see, but you'll see people doing the things they need to do to share the gospel and to fulfill the great commission. So let's look here, Ephesians chapter 4, 
Uh, starting in, uh, you really could go all the way up here into verse 7. So actually, we'll do that. And we'll, we'll kind of dive in closer to verse 11. But what's helpful in verse 7 is not only is there a movement in Ephesians from kind of this is the gospel, this is the doctrinal truths, that the foundational truths of the church and moving to what does that mean? How is that lived out? Verse 1, he kind of makes a big shift. How do you walk worthy of the calling? How do you live all of these truths out? Well, you do it in a, a lowly way, in a humble way. There's a unity, which we're going to see repeated again here, but it's not maybe the unity that we may think of off the top of our heads. But in verse 7, there's this reality that leads into what the Lord has given of the church then. And what the Lord has given the church is grace or gifts. And verse 7 says, But to each one of, his, of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a captive host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Or you could say, grace to men. And then reaffirming verse 9 and 10, simply that it, he really did go into the grave. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended himself also, he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. Just Paul's way of reminding you of this comprehensive reign of Christ. This is a picture of victory. He is victorious. And he is celebrating the spoils of his victory by giving grace and giving gifts to his people, the church. And then it leads into verse 11. And it kind of explains verse 8 of what are these gifts that he's given? What are these graces that he's given? Well, he's given people and he's given people who have measures of things. We like to talk about them as spiritual gifts. But understand it's simply a grace that God has given. This is another one of those challenging things because you don't get to determine all of that, right? You don't get to determine what God has given and what God has not given. You're left with doing the best with what the Lord has given to each one of us. But he describes in verse 11 that he, that Christ himself gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. And so as you look at this design or this blueprint of Christ himself, this is his church, this is what he has promised to build. The first thing you see after all the foundation is laid in the doctrine of the first few chapters is he's saying that the church has been given individuals. And so God's plan to mature the church is that he is going to do that maturing like he often works through things, through these gifted individuals. And I would say it this way, because I think this is a helpful shift maybe for you to think about, is this idea of gifted trainers, gifted teachers. But, but it's a shift towards training that I think he's talking about, development, maturity. And it's different than a lot of churches view the role of a church. Oftentimes, you, you might see that they would view the, the role of, especially a senior pastor, is that one of kind of more of, uh, one book puts it kind of, you know, the pastor as the CEO. And that kind of looks at a, a corporate model. The preacher and the manager. And we have those attractional meetings, lots of programs, lots of events, lots of marketing, trying to get people to desire this is a great thing. You want to be a part of it. And you have pastors or maybe a, a main pastor who is out there trying to fuel the fire, who is gifted, maybe not as much spiritually often, I think, but you know, the gift of cheerleading. And I'm thankful for people who are excited and all those things. But there is more depth that is needed. And what often happens is that culture that is set by that pastor as CEO, that kind of corporate, that managing style is a culture that, again, is that is here is the church that is providing all of these amazing services, but still very American. It's this idea that you as a congregation are the consumer, right? And just like McDonald's understands what they need to bring their consumers to keep coming back, 
they ask those same questions. They learn from those same people and that culture of that consumer. Now, uh, granted, a, a bigger growth mindset, but consumer mindset nonetheless. You also see oftentimes in the church, this idea of the pastor as kind of a smaller business who does all the work, that he is doing all the ministries, doing all the services, just like the small business owner, right, would do everything. He's the one providing the product and the the service. You do the Sunday morning, you do the visitation, you do the funerals, you do the, the baby things. And again, it becomes a little bit, granted, more of a maintenance mode, but still is a bit of a consumer mindset that the pastor is the one you hired to do the work and you get to sit back and enjoy, right, what is being given. But what is going to be presented here is something completely different, is that these individuals are meant to be trainers. That isn't to say, it's, it's kind of like the player coach. It's not that I, I don't get to, or can't, or uh, don't need to live as a Christian. I, I do. I need to be out evangelizing. I need to be out doing all of these things. But it is to say, there's a partnership that goes on. There's a training where it is the individuals, it's you in the congregation who go about doing the service, doing the ministry. And I think that is a way to fight an understanding that it fights completely against that consumer culture. It becomes primarily about worship this morning, right? And equipping, which we're going to see here in a moment in verse 12. But we get our understanding of the pastor as a shepherd teacher, as a trainer, as an equipper from this passage. In verse 11, it's Christ himself who gives some, and so this is not everyone, but some as apostles and some as prophets. And we won't lay uh, too much here over it, except for to say, when you look at the Ephesians, just in the book itself, this is the second time you've seen these two groups of people, these gifted individuals mentioned. The first time is in Ephesians 2, 20. And you go, who, who are these? And I think you understand, being through Matthew, you go, okay, the, the apostles, the sent ones, those 11 minus Judas, and then they add Matthias. The apostle Paul adds himself to that group of people. But then when he describes them, he uses this phrase, and I think this is what is probably most helpful to, to us, that having, oh, we start in verse 19 of chapter two, he says, so then you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built. So he kind of uses the household imagery, which Paul is very fond of in the church. You know, metaphors, household, he's gonna use the body metaphor later in chapter four. And he's saying in that household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being joined together is growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord in whom you are being built together. So this is kind of the theology of what we're fleshing out in chapter four. What does that look like? But being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. And so he uses that picture of the building and the foundation being laid. And so it's not that the foundation was was laid apart from Christ. He is the chief cornerstone, but he uses this metaphor to say the prophets and the apostles were unique in laying the foundation. And our understanding both of their function is that they had that function to lay it. They had that function to go out and to say in the first century, you are wondering, are these apostles from Jesus? And it's very interesting. You look at the book of Acts and you start to trace all the miraculous things. And you go, interesting. These miracles that the disciples do or the apostles do are repeats. They're just what you saw in the gospels. They do what Jesus did and they show and they demonstrate, just like Jesus' miracles demonstrated his power, that they have the spirit of Jesus by doing the miracles of Jesus. And they lay that foundation, but there are not apostles today. They lay the foundation and they are no more. And I think that's true of the prophet as well. There's a broad sense in which you can talk about a prophet proclaiming truth. I think this is probably more of a New Testament specific sense uh, of which the prophets were where we 
And I teach through mediated truth, right? I have the scriptures. They were getting immediate divine revelation. And that was unique to that early church. Why? Because they didn't have the full truth of the scriptures then. And we understand that those gifts, and we would say those gifts have ceased because their purpose has ceased. And that doesn't mean that God can't do things. Sometimes people hear that idea of, of certain gifts ceasing and they think, well, you're saying God can't do this. Because This isn't talking miraculous gifts here, but if you add to that miraculous gifts, like the gift of healing, which is a real New Testament gift. Thing. Well, you're saying God can't heal. But no, no. God can heal. God can do what God wants to do. It's just to say what you see in the New Testament of this first century gift, you say that was for a purpose and that was unique to that time. And we're not expecting to go and find in Providence the apostle or the prophet getting divine, uh, divine revelation or the healer, right? We're not looking to find those things because we believe they laid the foundation. They had a purpose to get that foundation laid. And then though, what I do believe continues on today is there is these unique individuals gifted as evangelists. And there, there seems to be a, a, we're all called to evangelism, I think there's a sense in which you could say, right, we're, we're all called to give a defense for the hope that you have within you. But yet, when it talks about these pastors and teachers and evangelists, there is something unique about them. And whether, kind of think a lot of categories, people talk about the missionaries, those who have this ability and this unique gifting to take the gospel and to spread it throughout the world. And I don't think you have to be a missionary somewhere else, but there are people perhaps here and, and every church is going to need them who specifically have a passion and a gifting for an effectiveness for sharing the gospel and making disciples. And so there's passion. You could say it is a little more outward focused. And then the pastor teacher, a lot of people take this as one in the same uh, there, there might be a little bit of a distinction, but I, I tend to look and see and understand it's, it's combined together. Pastor simply being a word that refers to shepherd, the shepherd, the teacher, the one who cares for the church, and the one who instructs the pastor as the one who is training the church. Because when it comes along, and it's interesting because we weren't focused on this too much this morning, uh, but even with both those categories— both those graces, both those gifts, the evangelist and the pastor and the pastor teacher, they are both to be about the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And so these are gifts to the church. Again, grace is given to individuals to guide the church, yes, to bring doctrinal unity but they do it through something. They do it through teaching, through equipping, through training. And so the mature church, obviously, uh, God matures the church through gifted trainers, but he also matures the church through the means of using them to equip the disciples to do the work of the ministry. And so it shouldn't be one person doing everything, but it's one person hopefully training groups of people to carry on and continue on, and they're continuing to train others, disciples making disciples. That is this pattern that Paul gives, the equipping of the saints for the work of this service. This idea of equipping, I don't think you need too much of a definition. It is what it seems, right? When you, when you give someone what they need, you give them equipment. You equip them. You, you wouldn't send someone out to the football field without their helmet, right? You give them the things that they need. There's the idea here in this word of being fully furnished. If you're like, I think most of us can be in this boat. Some of you have more mature houses than others. It takes us, I thought, you know, our last house was five years before we kind of made it our own and, and we're, we're going on six years in our, in, our, in our new house. And we're continuing to, right, kind of try to make it fully furnished or this idea of maturity and completeness. How do you make these disciples, how do you give them the things? How do you furnish their house? How do you give them the equipment they need to do ministry? You need to train them, equip them with a purpose. It's not just for head knowledge. 
Hopefully, you learned something this morning. Hopefully, for those who are in Sunday school, you learned something from Romans. If you're in FOF this morning, hopefully you, you learned something. But all that learning is meant to have an understanding to do something, right? To act, to serve, serve one another, serve those around you. And that is, in turn, then what builds up the church. And so that's as close as we get to this idea of growth. It's building on top of each other by equipping, equipping, equipping. You build up the body of Christ. And that's, like I said, where that goal makes all the difference. If that's what you're trying to accomplish, now you can actually get to a, a, a meeting and you can discuss, well, are we doing that well? Or are there other ways to accomplish it? Are there better ways to accomplish it? But again, the goal is what puts kind of the lanes on it to keep it into actually fulfilling the mission, the design that God has here for these people to come to the church, to gather and to be equipped for the work of the ministry. Not to look out and say, that's for others, but to say, no, that's for me to do the work of the ministry. And it happens till the Lord returns. Verse 13, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the full knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Why? Verse 14. So that no longer, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there and by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. And so it's interesting here because there's a sense in which you can say, is anyone done maturing? You can have a lot of gray hair and I think most people would say, I don't, I, I don't feel that mature. It, it never quite ends. And so I say till the Lord returns, but there's also something here that I think is somewhat attainable in a sense of it talks about the unity of the faith. So not the unity of faith, but like the faith, the Christian faith. And if you go back to verse five of chapter four, it's this idea of that we are called into the hope, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And oftentimes unity gets thrown around, especially the last couple of years. People go, oh, the church is so disunified because we can't agree on politics. So the church is so disunified because uh, we can't agree on COVID and those kinds of things. But this isn't talking about the kind of unity that comes from the things the scriptures don't address. This isn't the unity of, of preferences, right? This is a unity of doctrine. And so maturity comes when you come to a place. It's one of the reasons why you will find a rather lengthy doctrinal statement on the website for Providence is because you want to say that we want to come and hold these truths together and have unity in those truths and have and strive towards this idea of full. We're going to talk about it in a few weeks in, in Colossians because if you went into verse 17, Colossians has this as well, this idea of putting on, putting off. I think that's a huge part of what it means to mature. So we're going to build on this in a couple of weeks um, in, in Colossians. But Colossians also has this reminder in verse 13 of, of fullness of knowledge of the Son of God. That is to say you are striving towards completeness, maturity, fullness. That is what you have right now is partial. You are a unfinished work that the Lord is working on and he is fine-tuning and he is finishing and will be presented to Christ as his bride. The idea of a mature man, the measure of the stature of which belongs to the fullness of Christ, which we'll, we'll kind of leave a little bit of that till, till the last verse. Um, but it's this idea of a mature man versus a child. There are certain things that are immature, and there are certain things that are mature. And you just, you don't have to go very far than to look at your own children or the children in the church. And there's things they talk about that you don't talk about, right? And it's not to say it's bad because when five-year-olds act like five-year-olds, it's okay. When 12-year-olds act like 12-year-olds, it's okay. 
But, and it gets a little tricky in between, what happens when your eight-year-old acts like a five-year-old? You know, it's kind of iffy. It's like, ah, oh, I know you're not 15. I know you're not 21. But you're eight, right? Act your age. It's this idea here of maturity that you would no longer be immature. You no longer be children. Why? Because children are bouncing around. They're tossed, they're two, they're fro, they're carried about every wind of doctrine. Interesting, right? He's saying that they're carried around by teaching, new teachings, new shiny thing, new philosophies. You know, I know you've been doing it this way, you've been preaching the word, but that's never going to fill the seats. People aren't interested in that in our culture. If you preach sermons that are more than 15 or 20 minutes, they won't sit still. They can't sit still. Well, I think of those as this idea of, that's, that's new. People have sat still. Most of those kids sat still in school. I think they can sit still. But it, but it has, as Colossians says, the appearance of wisdom. It's, it's trickery, <laughs> uh, craftiness, deceitful scheming, that you would abandon certain things that are clearly scriptural and go, oh, we can't train like we used to train. We can't use the scriptures the way we used to use the scriptures because... You know, people are so visual. You need short 15-minute videos. That's all. They can't take any, any more. And I go, well, that's deceptive because what you ultimately do is you'll build that self-feeding culture that expects that. And guess what? All of a sudden, they won't want to sit anymore because you've trained them that way. Rather, we should train them the other way of what is most important and that it's worth learning and it's worth sitting and it's worth studying. And that way, you equip and say, this is a better way. Providence isn't perfect. I am not perfect. I, I wish you had the best preacher in the world. I mean, you know, I wish it. But you, you get what you get, right? And there's a way in which you go, you do the best that you can do. And you hold the things that you biblically hold to say, we have to do these things. We've got to prioritize equipping and training, which we'll get to in the church. Because if God matures the church by providing those gifted trainers and matures believers through the equipping, and I think primarily we'll talk equipping in the word of God in scripture, well then how does that, how does that work itself out? The work of, of service, you can say, okay, the, the ministry of service, the, the equipping to do the work of the ministry, uh, serving one another, yes, but within that, 1 Peter 4 talks about the grace of God, the gifts of God, spiritual gifts. I love 1 Peter 4 because it makes it simple. And he just categorizes graces or gifts as speaking gifts and as service gifts. But here in Ephesians, he talks about the fact that in 15, and this isn't a just command for pastor, right? This is to the saints, this is to you, that we're all called to be speaking truth in love. And so he matures the church through speaking, as we'll see, comprehensive truth, truth to grow up in all aspects, not some, but all. You speak the truth, particularly in an atmosphere, as it were, of love. You think about children. Do children do better in an atmosphere of love in their home where they never wonder? They, yeah, I know I'm, I deserve a consequence, but they're never wondering whether their parents truly love them and Yes, we understand children grow best in that atmosphere of love. And I think the same is true for the church. You are going to grow. You're going to understand. You're going to hear truth in a way that it's meant to be taken because someone loves you and cares for you. It's a lot different than someone coming in and you go, I don't think you care for me. And so you speak truth in love, but we are to grow up then in all aspects, comprehensive, into him, and that is into Christ, who is the head, that is Christ, from whom the whole body being joined and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the properly measured working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Kind of how love brackets that. The beginning, speaking truth in love, and of course, building up itself in love. Again, these are, these are the right kind of growing metrics that you would grow up in love. And you might look at verse 16, and it does seem like a lot. It just seems, you know, you read it, and I, I read it a little bit fast, but whole body being joined together. What, what is he talking about? 
right? It's just, it's just that picture of the child still and that there are some things that, you know, as you're growing, you go through those awkward phases. You, you have the, the kids who, you know, early on, everyone has a disproportional head and they're learning to walk. And man, Riker right now, he just turned two, his whole body's bruised because he's just tripping and falling. And once he goes, the head, right, boom, he's disproportional. It's that idea of being held together by every joint, growing uh, according to properly measuring, working each individual, causing the growth of the body, that it grows together, that you start to stretch out and you start to get proportional, right? You see the young ladies, young men, and you go, okay, you're four foot 10, but you wear a size 13. I think you might be tall, right? Eventually you grow into those things. I think my favorite example, I had a friend who pointed this out with little babies. And if you have a little baby, hold their arm up. And it's just one of the funniest things because it goes about to their ear. And you go, well, everyone else, I mean, I don't have the longest arms, but right. And it's so disproportional when they're little, but you know, eventually they're going to grow and those arms are going to lengthen. And it's just, you try it sometimes. It's a very cute, adorable uh, thing. But you know, they're going to grow up and become mature and proportional. But the way, the means of which that from your side of the fence. So pastors, teachers, evangelists, you're equipping, right? The saints for the work of the ministry. How are they going about? At least primarily, they're speaking the truth, what they've been equipped with in love, in every way, in every aspect. And so it's completely comprehensive and love compels us to do it, that we would be complete, this idea of maturity, and whole. And if you don't, and if you're at a church that does not strive, again, everyone's doing it in some way, maybe imperfectly, but you're going to have more and more disproportional and issues when you're not equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry, because the ministry is not going to happen, and our own nature is going to kind of stray from these things. It means, I think often in verse 15, speaking the truth and love, that you can't always do the things that you want to do, right? Sometimes you have to do the things you need to do. You, you might hate conflict. I don't love conflict. But sometimes, because you want the person to mature, you have to say some things that might be controversial. But when it happens, you go, well, love compels me to say something. And again, it it's interesting, verse 15, that it's this idea of speaking. And, and I don't know if it's the Nebraskan in me, it's my own personality, but I, sometimes I don't want to say it out loud and sometimes I hope my children or someone else will simply know what I'm thinking and I don't want to say it. Well, at some point, you got to say it. It's just like the gospel. At some point, you're going to have to tell someone and explain it with words or they're never going to understand what it is to believe and understand the gospel. And so this is this idea of partnering that goes on in the church. So we talk, I just love the term partnering because it's a little bit better. Because in our culture, this whole idea of who's doing the work, right? And member's not bad. Member, think of the, the body and all the members in the body. And the New Testament tends to use that in kind of a church universal standpoint. Um, but when we talk about it, if you're like me, the first thing you think about is, you know, you're the member of uh, AAA, right? You're a member of your gym. You're, you're a member of a club. And, and, and the way we use that term, you usually pay. They provide a service, right? You get something, you pay, and they get you something. And so you bring that mindset into the church, and, and, and that's not it. That's not the New Testament mindset of partnering and that you get something and you take it, and then you go and you serve. And so that idea of this partnering together not just the leaders, but the individuals serving one another. If you go to, real quick, First Thessalonians chapter 5. This is just a great place. Great verse, great place. And I, I found this interesting this week. But First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. And what I find interesting uh, for us this morning is that the, there's an admonishment here. Um, about the leaders and to regard them. 
And, and there, there's something here as well, though, where the assumption becomes where he's not talking to the leaders anymore. And it's interesting because you think he would be, but he's actually talking to the whole church. And so in verse 12, he says, But we ask of you, brothers, that you know those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you, and that you would guard them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. And note in verse 14, he does not address those leaders. He addresses the brothers. That is, he addresses the church. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the unruly, <coughs> encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. All those things, you probably go, well, Josh should be admonishing the unruly, the idle. It's kind of an idea there. Josh should encourage the faint-hearted. Pastors should help the weak. Pastors should be patient with everyone. But it's interesting, the addressing is to the church. And so the ministry that happens here and the best of it, always. My mom said never to say always and never. I'll say always. Always, the best of ministry is always happening apart from me. Not to say uh, the preaching of the word, we do have a high view of the word and understanding that, but it is to say there are things that go on that only you guys can do and that the pastor is never meant to do. Again, there's equipping that happens and then you go out and you do the work of ministry. What does this mean for, for providence? What does it have to do with this idea of a philosophy of ministry? Or that, by that, I just mean why you do what you do. And not just saying, just based a little more general from Ephesians, but like it is to say we have a high view of God. That is, to, we view and we don't want a high view of man. We have a high view of God and, and then primarily where we understand and learn from God, we have a high view of Scripture and a priority that comes down to sound doctrine and that of personal holiness. And I mention these things simply as an application to understand because of those things and a goal of equipping and to communicate these values, it changes what you do Sunday morning and it changes what kind of structures you have throughout the, uh, throughout the, throughout the week. And so on the score of maybe just even more practically, uh, Sundays, we prioritize worship in the word. Why? Because we understand that the truth of scripture, the equipping of the saints is about conforming to the image of Christ. And where do you find Christ? Where do you find the mind of Christ? Well, the spirit illuminates our hearts, I think with the mind of Christ, when you look to his word, it becomes this priority because that's where truth is Found. How do you speak the truth in love? Well, you have to know truth. Where do you find truth? You find it in the scriptures. And so it's not a place where you come for earthly wisdom, but you want spiritual food, spiritual wisdom. And so, hence, you have a longer sermon because there's a priority put on the sermon. It's not to say there, there's no place for music. I love music. There's worship in song, but it is to say we want to communicate and equip, and you only do that by teaching people what the Word of God says, and therefore we prioritize worship on Sundays through the Word. We also prioritize personal spiritual disciplines in discipleship groups throughout the week. That is to say that one sermon, one time a week, and some fellowship, hopefully you're going to stick around fellowship afterwards, is not going to be enough to grow you spiritually. There has to be some development of these personal disciplines, but not just private. And that's where both at 1 Thessalonians 5 and the Ephesians 4 passage, there is a assumption. And the assumption of that passage is there are other people involved to some degree. I'm not saying it's a huge group of people, but there are other people. The context of that growth is in the church. And so you start to think about those structures of the church. Well, I think there's a lot of freedom in how you, in that sense, how do you accomplish that goal? How do you accomplish spiritual depth? How do you accomplish encouraging people in the reading of scripture and the understanding of doctrine? You could have a lots of different kinds of studies, but for us, we've kind of said, this is the most effective way that we currently know of 
to accomplish our goal, which is to mature the saints. And so that's what we do through the weeks with discipleship groups. And then thirdly, this is a big, I think, aspect of um, that the focus is on not kind of an event, but it's on you, the congregation, and the prioritization of a congregational evangelistic outreach through relationships. And they're not trying to necessarily, and if, if someone was here this morning, or if you're here this morning and you're going, I'm not sure I'm, I'm a Christian, it's not to say that I wouldn't want that person or, or for you to feel welcome. It's just to say there is some degree of which there is, that's okay that you're looking in, but understanding and there being clarity there is an outside and that the, the primary effectiveness of evangelism is gonna go through you to the people that you know. You can lean on me, but I would take 150 evangelists over one any day of the week. Well, the focus becomes then again on how do you get people growing and less on the structures of the ministry. And so if discipleship groups, just to give an example, stop being effective or there's a more effective way for people to mature, no issue. You change the structure. We just try to do the things because that's the goal and everything starts to revolve around what are the best ways. And one of those ways you go, hey, you're already here Sunday morning. Why don't you come an hour early for, and let's have a Sunday school, right? And it's one of those things where uh, Sunday school's been in and out of vogue, I think in, in the modern church for sure. But a huge part for me is you get more, right? And does it help someone mature when they get through and they can have a interactive time in FOF? Absolutely. And so you go, that fits with what we are trying to do with the goal of Ephesians 4, I think with God's design. But you don't want to become primarily about programs. As I was told very early in ministry, ministry is not about programs, it's about people. I think that's true. Uh, the aim as a church is to focus on that maturity and not just on the, the leadership level, but on you guys and equipping you so that you can do the work and partner in that ministry, speaking truth to one another. And therefore, hopefully together, we're all growing and being built up into, which is the goal, Christ-likeness. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can look at your word. We can see instruction. We can learn. Lord, help us continue to prioritize those things that your word prioritizes. That, as I, I think of in First Timothy, that we are to be the, the pillar and the support of truth in this world. Well, the strength of that support is directly correspondent to how strong we are in your truth. Just encourage us this morning as we look for ways, Lord, to grow. Uh, let it be just a reminder that it is not meant to just be individual, although we need to be in our word and in prayer, but that there is a vital role for others and a vital role for the church corporate as we strive <coughs> to grow and to mature. Lord, I pray that you'd mature us, mature us as a church as a whole. Lord, we just pray this in your son's name. Amen.